So uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15. And we're thinking about the feasts of the Lord. The feasts of the Lord. It says, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days. Ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And ye shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one bullock and two rams. And they shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and the drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savour unto the Lord. Then ye shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priests shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And ye shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be in holy convocation unto you. You shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, for the privilege that is ours to come apart from the world, to sit in this meeting place one with another without fear of interference or molestation by government or authorities and to gather around thy holy word. Bless us today, Father, as we look into this scripture, encourage our hearts, instruct us in the way of righteousness. Lord, show us wondrous things out of thy law, not just that we would be informed, but that we would be transformed, that we would be, Lord, more like the Lord Jesus in every respect, and that we'd be appreciative of the blessings and the privileges that are ours in Christ. Bless too, Father, our time in prayer as we proceed into the evening. We ask, God, that you'd meet with us there. There would be a real uh, spirit of unity among us as we pray one for another, as we bear our burdens before thy throne of grace. We ask that you meet with us there and that we might sense your help and your presence and know that we can come in confidence knowing that we have anything, any petition we ask of you, if it be in keeping according to your will. So, Father, we commit this evening to thee. Use it for thy glory and for the glory of thy Son, whose name we pray in. Amen. Okay, so you'll recall from Leviticus chapter 23 that we have the seven feasts of the Lord laid before us. And these form a prophetic calendar of the ages. And uh, they lay out for us the key events that, that surround the nation of Israel. The first four feasts are spring feasts. And we've covered three of those. The Passover, which relates to the crucifixion. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which relates to the burial of the Lord. And the Feast of First Fruits, which we looked at last time we were together last week. And we saw it pertains to the resurrection 
of the Savior. We go to the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, whichever you want to call it, and we need no help, I suppose, in identifying its fulfillment in the day of Pentecost. Those are the spring feasts. In between the spring feasts and the autumn feasts, prophetically, you have the church age, and then in the autumn, you have the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, and they all are yet to be fulfilled. So the spring feasts have been fulfilled in the ministry of Christ in his first advent. The second set of feasts, the autumn feasts, are yet to be fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the events surrounding his coming. So we considered last week the feast of first fruits, or we should say the first feast of first fruits. And I did say to you that there are two such feasts in Leviticus. The first is considered early first fruits, the second is obviously latter first fruits, and the latter occurs 50 days after the former, hence the name uh, Pentecost, uh, indicating 50. It's also known as the Feast of Weeks because uh, after the celebration of the first first fruits feast, uh, they begin counting, uh, they, they counting the omer, counting the sheaf, as it were, until the second stage of harvest and the second feast of first fruits. So this evening we are turning our attention to this second feast of first fruits, the feast of weeks, the feast of Pentecost, and uh, we are going to spend some of our time, relatively little of our time in Leviticus chapter 23 and then we'll spend a fair bit of our time in Acts chapter 2 tonight if you want to put something in there and keep your place because we're going to look at that. Now if you think about all we've learned so far as far as the feast of the Passover goes, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of first fruits uh, pertaining to the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ well, it's, uh, no, there's no prize for guessing where we are going. It is to the Feast of Pentecost and the Day of Pentecost. And on the Day of Pentecost, the church gathered together. Or they had gathered together. They were praying. Uh, they were praying concerning the promise that Jesus gave them, uh, both while he was on earth with them and also in Acts chapter 1 after his resurrection and just before his ascension, he told them that they should expect the Comforter or the Holy Ghost. And uh, they sat and they waited as they were instructed to that that promise might be uh, fulfilled. And they were not to be disappointed. That promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So we want to begin tonight by just looking at the Pentecost of Israel as a harvest feast day. And we've read the scripture there in Leviticus chapter 23 in verses 15 to 22. And if you peruse that a section of scripture, uh, you'll see what happened on that day uh, as this feast was decreed. And now, the, the way this worked is that you were to bring uh, from your dwellings two uh, wave loaves, or two loaves that were to be waved before the Lord. Uh, and in this national festival, celebrating the Feast of the Week, these two loaves were brought down to the priests, and there, as we say, they would have been held in the hands of the priests, and he would have waved them before the Lord as an offering unto the Lord. Now, the remarkable thing to notice is two things, really. Number one, this was uh, different from the Feast of First Fruits, which presented the grain in its natural form. This, on this occasion, it comes in a prepared form. The grain has been prepared 
and has been turned into bread. But the really remarkable thing is the inclusion of leaven. Because as we talked about the Feast of Passover, we made the point about how scrupulous the Jewish people are, removing leaven from their homes, getting it out and declaring to the Lord that they were no longer responsible for any little pieces of leaven that may be found in their dwelling place. They burned the leaven uh, and so on. We talked all about that when we looked at the, uh, at the, feast, of, uh, at the feast of Passover. Uh, but in that respect, in this feast, Leaven is to be included with the bread. Now look at verse 17. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. And as I said to you when we looked at this feast and the feast of unleavened bread, that leaven is typological of sin in scripture. So it's kind of unusual that you have inclusion of leaven, of something that was deemed to be unclean. Generally speaking, Israel was forbidden from offering any kind of leaven with a blood sacrifice. If you look in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 18, for example, Exodus 23, 18. says, Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. So, you know, that's a very clear uh, command. There's to be no leaven uh, bread offered with the sacrifice, but here's an exception to the rule. And of course, God is God. He's sovereign. He can make the exceptions uh, to the rule. The one who, can, who makes the rules has the right to revise the rules or uh, to alter the rules however he pleases. And so we find here in Leviticus chapter 23, there's an exception. And the exception is the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. So there's a symbolic message in the presence of the leaven in the bread that is handed to the priests and is then waved before the Lord. And so he has to go down and give this bread over. The priest accepts it, waves it before the Lord. And then there's a further offering of meat made, uh, seven lambs, one young bullock, uh, we read, and two rams that are to be uh, presented before the Lord. Now, Pentecost obviously relates to the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. But we want to think about this as a Jewish tradition because Jewish tradition also taught that Pentecost marked the day when the law was given to Israel. And that's quite important really. You know, the Jews sometimes called Pentecost, and excuse my Hebrew, Shemkath Torah, or joy of the law. Joy of the law. And uh, why did they call it that? Well, the reason was, as I said, Israel received the law on the day of Pentecost. And in fact, there are some parallels between the Exodus uh, Pentecost and the, and the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. In the book of Exodus, what you witness on the day of Pentecost is the birth uh, of a nation. Uh, and so on the day of Pentecost for the church, you witness the birth of the church. In Exodus, uh, the, the Pentecost of Exodus has 3,000 people die. Remember, Moses comes down from the mount to discover that Aaron has erected this golden calf and the people are dancing around it. They're worshipping it much as they would have done or would have witnessed in the land of Egypt from whence they came. And uh, the consequence of that was that 3,000 people died. 
Whereas in Acts chapter 2, on the Christian day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are born again. 3,000 people live exactly the opposite. Why is that? Well, there's a, there's a point to be made here. The law is the ministration of death. The law brings death. You know, this is the fallacy of anybody who thinks that they can be saved by the keeping of the law. The law exists to condemn you. It exists to expose sin. And it brings with it the wages of sin, which is death. But the day of Pentecost, as far as Acts 2 is concerned, was the opposite. It was the flip side of that, showing that Christ had overcome death, and now there's an offering of life going out to all the nations. In Exodus, we know that the Pentecost day, as celebrated by the Jews, was introduced in a mighty way. There was thunder and lightnings and earth movement and all the rest of it. All kinds of interesting phenomena was going on, such that it put fear in the heart of the Israelites. And we know on the Christian day of Pentecost that the Spirit is introduced also in a mighty way. But there's something else that I want you to get relating to the pattern of Pentecost. A large part of the time on Sinai was spent uh, considering the construction of the tabernacle. And at the very end of the book of Exodus, an interesting thing happens. Let's look in Exodus chapter 40 for a moment. Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. And let's look at verse 34. It says, and, and this is at the point at which the tabernacle has been erected according to God's plan. It says, Then a cloud covered the tent, the tabernacle of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the, was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So at, the, at that precise moment, the tabernacle was inhabited by the presence of God, by the Shekinah glory of God. And, uh, and so it remained and, until such a time as the, temp- the temporary tabernacle was replaced by a permanent temple during the reign of King Solomon. And then a similar thing happens. Look in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 10. So Solomon has invested a lot of money and time and energy into building this splendid building, a building that was remarkable in its age, one that drew the attention of neighboring monarchs. In verse 10 it says, On the day of dedication that it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud Fill the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, similar to Moses, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So up until that moment, this temple, as grand and as expensive as it was, 
was nothing more than a rather extravagant shell of a building. But when the Lord goes into that building and he is housed in the Holy of Holies, then the temple takes on a sacred significance. And so once the Lord entered in, the place is set apart. And again, the Lord manifests himself. Now, by the time we get to the book of Ezekiel, and we don't have a whole lot of time to dwell on this tonight, so I'm just going to fill in some of the detail. By the time we get to the book of Ezekiel, the temple has been infected and infested by idolatry. The priests have brought in idols into the very place where the Lord's presence dwelt. And uh, the Lord uh, calls, uh, determines the place to be Ichabod it's, it, and his, his glory departs from it. And so it's kind of interesting what happens. He gets up from the mercy seat. Uh, he moves towards the threshold of the door of the temple. He turns out toward the eastern gate uh, and he heads across the Kidron Valley and up into the Mount of Olives and he ascends back on high. And so at that point, that temple is now essentially an, a temple for idols. Because what makes the temple the temple is the presence of God. And so if God is no longer in it, it's no longer a temple of the Lord. And if idols are in it, it now becomes a temple of idols. Hence it's ultimately destroyed. But what's interesting is this. When the Lord Jesus returns, what does he do? He comes the same way in reverse that the presence of the Lord took when he departed the temple. He comes to the Mount of Olives. He goes across the Kidron Valley. He goes up to the eastern gate. Actually, I don't think he's even going to go up. I think there'll be a causeway that'll just be straight across. He goes straight across to the eastern gate, under the campus of the temple, turns into the, through the threshold of the door, and takes his seat uh, on his throne in the Holy of Holies. So, bearing in mind then that the presence of the Lord left the temple during the time of Ezekiel, just prior before the nation goes into captivity, and never returned. Never returned. You never again read, like you read in Exodus or you read in Kings, that the cloud filled the house. That never happens. In the lifetime even of the Lord Jesus, although he is present, he himself does not enter into the Holy of Holies, and there is no presence of God in that place. And so it remains until even the second temple is destroyed, obviously in 70 AD, when uh, Titus comes. And uh, tears the thing down. So the question is then, is God without a temple on earth today? And the answer to that question is no. Look in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 and verse 47. Referencing 1 Kings and chapter 8, Luke writes, But Solomon built him a house, built the Lord a house. Howbeit the Most High, notice, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. This is Stephen's sermon. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my Rest, And we find then that the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands. Well, what kind of temples does he then dwell in? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 gives us the answer to that question. It says, Know ye not that ye are the 
temple of God. The Greek word is neos, which literally means the holy of holies. Do you not understand that you are the holy of holies of the Lord? And that the Spirit of God, notice the language, dwelleth in you. He's no longer dwelling in buildings made with hands. He's building, he's dwelling in this building that is now the church that is established upon uh, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so we see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Look, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21. It says, verse 20, sorry, down to the end of the chapter. And ye are built and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the stone that gives the line to the rest of the building, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together, notice, for an habitation, a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. So, does God have a temple on earth today? He certainly does. We are his temple. We who know Christ and in whom the Spirit of God dwells. So here's a common mistake that many Christian people make. They talk about the church as the house of the Lord and they're speaking of the building. Friends, the building is bricks and mortar. That's all it is. You know, the building is not sacred. Uh, This building is no more sacred in terms of its construction than a local supermarket or a local school. It's just built from the same materials by the same means and methods. But what makes this building special is not its shape or its layout or its aesthetical appeal. What makes it special is when the people of God gather into it and we join together as the holy of holies, the neos of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord dwells in this place when we are in this place. Isn't that amazing? And here's the thing. You know, you don't have to have a beautiful building for that to happen. You know, there are, there are churches in England and they meet in community centers. They meet in schools. They meet in hotel rooms. Uh, they meet in all kinds of weird and wonderful places. But there are no less churches than our churches. And so we mustn't ever conceive of the building as being a holy thing. It's the people who are the holy thing. Now, when did all of this happen? When did the Spirit of God enter into the church of God? Well, the answer is on the Pentecost of the church. Let's look then in Acts chapter 2, and this is where we'll be for the remainder of our evening. Acts chapter 2. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. 
and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene and the strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our, in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Now, Pentecost, and you know, people say this doesn't matter, but it does matter. Pentecost marks the birthday of the church. Now, there are people who say, No, 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 the church began with Adam, or the church began with Jesus' declaration in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Or when Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20, they suggest these are potential starting points for the church. But actually, it's the day of Pentecost is the birthday of the church. And I want to establish that uh, with you uh, tonight. So we should reasonably expect, as with the tabernacle and the temple before, there should be some kind of manifestation of the presence of God on this day as it is specially marked. And that's exactly what you find in verses 1 to 4. They gather in the house together. The day of Pentecost has fully come. It's now being fulfilled as anticipated in the feast day. The church is gathered with one accord in one place. And notice there comes this sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Not a gentle breeze by any means. A tornado type sound. A roaring sound. And it fills the house where they were sitting. Can you imagine sitting there or sitting here and such a thing happening? It would certainly get your attention, wouldn't it? If you sensed the tornado was all around you. And then it says, and there appeared unto them, something visible happens, cloven tongues, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, notice that first line, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. This is a day of prophetic significance. And in particular, it's a day important to the history and the life and the development of the nation of Israel. Now remember, the whole church at this point is Israel. It's all Jewish. There's not a Gentile Body to be seen in the place. The entire church in the beginning was Jewish. And all the feast days have significance for Jewish people. So you don't need me to rehearse those feast days again from Passover all the way through the tabernacles. You saw how they each one correlate with a particular day in the history or prophecy of Israel. So this day had been long promised, not least of all by Jesus himself. 
and now it had finally and fully come. And there might have been glimpses for, of it before. In John chapter 20, for example, when Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. That's, a, that's simply a, 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 a foretaste, if you like. It's like a, a little starter. Uh, it was just a glimpse of what was to come, but it's not the day of Pentecost fully come. And it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord gathered in one place. 120 gathered in the upper room, praying and waiting. Now, I want to say something to you, and this is also important in our understanding of this occasion. I want you to understand this. Nothing, nothing they did excited the Spirit to come. I want you to get that. Nothing they did, because the Spirit was going to come anyway. You say, well, Pastor, they were praying and, and, and they were calling for the Spirit to come. No, they were praying. But even if they hadn't have been praying, the Spirit would still have come. Why so? Because Jesus promised it. And the day of Pentecost, uh, sorry, the feast of Pentecost uh, predicted it. So the, this event was assured not by the fervent prayers of the saints, but by the sure promise of the word of Christ. They were simply waiting for the fulfillment of the divine promise. Now watch verse 2. And suddenly... There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. Here's the sound of Pentecost. And we've touched on it already, this idea of a rushing mighty wind. And we know that wind in scripture is a type of the Holy Spirit. You can find that in Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 9. And probably easiest of all to reference John chapter 3 and verse 8. Where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about the new birth. And he says the wind bloweth where it listeth. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the sound filled the room. It was indicative of the coming of the Spirit of God. Just as they witnessed the cloud moving into the temple and into the tabernacle and kings and exodus. Now there's this sound that indicates the Spirit's coming and he is moving into the church. He is taking up his habitation. Verse 3 then says that there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire. There's the sights of it. Like wind, fire too intimates the presence of God. Several times God reveals himself by this means uh, throughout the Old Testament. Let's look in Genesis uh, chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 and verse 17. And this is the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. And you'll remember the account how that God caused Abraham to go asleep and they divided up these animals and uh, they, the Lord then went through in the covenantal uh, ceiling and established a unilateral uh, agreement, covenant with Abraham and then later with Israel. At verse 17 it says, It came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace, notice, and a burning lamp that passed between those Pieces. There's the presence of God sealing the covenant. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, you have the story of Moses. He's on the backside of the desert. He's taking care of Jethro's sheep. And what happens? He encounters a bush, a bush that is burning. 
but is not consumed. Well, what's going on there? Well, we know the Lord speaks to him out of that bush. And so we could go on with other similar examples. So fire is pictorial of the presence of God. It's also a particular indication of God's judgment in some way. God is going to bring a judgment of some kind. And this is particularly true with respect to Israel. See, when, when you see and read of cloven tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost, understand that God is judging this nation. They have rejected the Messiah. Up to now, they have been the keepers of the oracles of God. They have preserved the scriptures. And they should have been a a light unto the Gentiles. And they should have accepted Christ and and have him establish his kingdom. Taken him as their king. But of course, they crucify him. And they reject him and they say, we won't have this man to rule over us. What happens? God says, okay then. We're going to change direction. I'm no longer concerned with Israel. I'm no longer going to speak in one tongue, Hebrew. I'm going to be dealing with all the nations and bringing the truth of Christ in many tongues to every man. This is a, a judgment upon the nation of Israel. And remember, the Feast of first fruits is a harvest feast. So this day is indicating the beginning of a harvest. Not a harvest of barley or wheat, but a harvest of souls. And then we get to that troublesome line for many, verse 24. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's the speech of Pentecost. They began speaking in other tongues, other languages that were prior to that point completely unknown to them. But there were languages in which the Jewish people gathered on the day of Passover would have been familiar with. Many of them would have been familiar with because they heard them preach in their native tongue. Remember, Passover, unleavened bread, uh, first fruits draws in Jews from all arts and parts. They came in from all around uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate these occasions. And so, as a consequence, there are Jews in Jerusalem that day, and we're told they were devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, I want you to understand something. Tongues is a side issue in this chapter. You see, there are believers and those who, uh, who believe in, in the modern manifestation of tongues, so-called, who try to make this make, be the all and end all of the day of Pentecost. It's a side show on the day of Pentecost. The central thing here is the Spirit's coming and indwelling God's people. That's the pivotal thing. Everything else is secondary to that. Okay? And uh, even tongues themselves are a side issue in the New Testament. You know, they're, they're barely touched on. Mark 16, the Lord speaks about them in the future tense. Uh, Acts chapter 2, we've read of them here. Acts chapter 10 and 19 uh, with uh, the uh, Gentile, um, the conversion of the Gentiles under Cornelius. And then, then later on, the 12 uh, apostles, disciples of John who come and who haven't even heard of the Holy Ghost. Uh, those are the other occasions in which this phenomenon is mentioned. And of course, it is mentioned in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12 through 14. 
But what I want you to see is this. If you get this nailed down, you'll be in less trouble in the rest of those passages. All right, Tongues is always about the Jews. It's a sign to the Jew. In every instance, there's a Jewish presence. In the case of Cornelius and the Gentiles, who get saved in Acts chapter 10, tongues were a sign to the Jews present that God was moving beyond the borders of Israel. In the case of, of Acts chapter 19, you have the disciples of John, who knew nothing, John the Baptist, who knew nothing of the Holy Ghost. Didn't even know there was such a thing as the Holy Ghost. Uh, and again, this sign is given to them as Jews. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we find this sign is, is part and parcel of their experience in the Corinthian church. Well, if you read of the founding and the development of the church at Corinth, you'll find it was, it was next door, right next door to a synagogue. There's no other church that is referenced in the rest of the New Testament that seemed to have this phenomenon as part of its ministry. And again, you see this Jewish connection. So the tongues mentioned in Acts 2 are really just a a smaller cog in a bigger wheel. And, And those brethren and those folks who push and push and push tongues as being the sign of your salvation are far off the mark. They're missing the whole point. Those who say that tongues is the major thing, the hallmark of spirit baptism, are giving an emphasis to it that scripture doesn't give. Now certainly the tongues mentioned here and throughout the rest of the New Testament, I believe, and and I'm absolutely, the older I get, the more convinced of this I become. They're completely unrelated to the phenomenon that is being witnessed in charismatic and Pentecostal churches today. Have nothing, they're not the same thing. You're comparing apples and oranges. You see, the tongues mentioned here are not some ecstatic, heavenly language of some kind, but they're a known, intelligible, comprehensible, earthly language. And the Spirit of God, right from the off, goes to great lengths to establish this point. Notice verse 5 again. Gathered in Jerusalem were devout men out of every nation, under heaven. Why would that matter if it's a heavenly language? Because it matters to the, to the narrative. Verse 6. Every man heard them speak in what? What's it say there? His own language. doesn't say that he heard them speak in some heavenly jibber-jabber that, you know, that never heard before. It's that they've heard him speak in, the, in their own language. Again, verses 7 and 8, the miraculous things was the speakers were all Galileans, but every man heard them speak. Notice, in our own tongue, wherein we were born. This is our native tongues. Verses 9 and 10, they unhelpfully list the various nationalities that were present. And verse 11 states it again. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Four times the Holy Spirit specifically records that these were intelligible, comprehensible human languages. And yet still people come along today trying to fob off Acts 2 as though it is somehow equating with today's Pentecostalism and charismatic experience. When you actually pin pin our Pentecostal and charismatic friends down on this, and they acknowledge that, Yeah, they were known languages. 
And by the way, when, when historically, when the phenomenon of tongues broke out in the modern church, they thought they were speaking Chinese. They thought they were speaking a known language, and they sent missionaries to China who spoke to the Chinese in this supposed gift. And the Chinese looked at them and thought, what in the world are they talking about? And sent them packing. That's what happened in history. But if you kneel our friends down on this and they concede to this point that, yeah, these are known languages, they will then try to tell you that the languages of 1 Corinthians 12 are different, that they are uh, heavenly languages. They are angelic languages, that they're not the same uh, as in Acts chapter 2. Well, if that's the case, shouldn't they call themselves Corinthians instead of Pentecostals? And I don't think there's many churches today that want to identify as Corinthians because it was positively the worst of the New Testament churches. Now, add to this the evidence uh, of, uh, of the criteria for speaking in tongues recorded in 1 Corinthians. And you start to get the idea that our Pentecostal friends are not as Pentecostal as they suppose. For example, there's to be no more than two or three that speak at any meeting. Verse 27 of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And yet, is it not the case that in many Pentecostal meetings, there are wholesale outbreaks of speaking in tongues. Where, and I've, I've heard this you know, and witnessed it online, where literally big auditoriums are filled with people, all of whom are talking at the same time, and all of whom are claiming to be speaking in tongues. Well, that's contrary to Scripture. Verse 27, that chapter tells you, each speaker is to follow after the other. It also goes on and tells you, you need one person to interpret. Before you can speak, there has to be an interpreter. And if no interpreter is found, then no one's to speak. Verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 14. So constantly, the speakers, we're told, are to be in control of their faculties. They're not to be, you know, rolling about with their eyes up in their head somewhere and, you know, experiencing some kind of vision or, or, or some kind of trance. You know, they're to be completely in charge of their person. It says in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 14, for the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, they're to be in control of their faculties. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So there's no emptying of the mind here, no head rolling, no hysterics, no big build up with the music, none of the amateur dramatics that goes on with it, no wild laughter or barking like dogs. None of these things were present on the day of Pentecost. None of them. And significantly, the things that were present on the day of Pentecost, the mighty rushing wind, the cloven tongues of fire, are absent from Pentecostal meetings. I remember hearing a fellow one time saying how he was coaching others to speak in tongues. You don't find that in Acts chapter 2. Nobody came in and coached Peter and John and the others and said, now this is what you got to do. You've got to let your tongue roll around in your head for a while and then just say a few words. Just go blah, 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 blah. It'll come to you. What'll well, come to you is some kind of man in a white coat take you away. That's what'll come to you eventually. I heard a fellow one time and I was listening to, a, to his sermon on tape. It was actually his testimony. It was quite good up to a point. And uh, he began then to tell how he uh, was uh, baptized in the Holy Ghost as he saw it. 
and uh, how he was longing to be speaking in tongues, but it wasn't coming, it wasn't coming. And he says, I went into the room on my own and I closed the door and I, and I began to say over and over again, rhubarb, 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 rhubarb. Until it came to me. You know, I just wish the Lord had said, custard, custard, custard. <laughs> That's what he needed for his rhubarb, was a bit of custard. Oh, what a nonsense this is. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34, it says explicitly concerning the gift of tongues that it's not permitted for a woman to speak. Let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted unto them to speak. So either they're not allowed to speak at all, ever in church, period, or I think in context, They're not allowed to speak in tongues. And there is no evidence of any woman ever speaking in tongues in the New Testament. So one time I had a woman call me up when I was a young pastor in Dublin. She called me up. She asked me if I believed the Bible. I said I did. She says, do you believe this and that? Do you believe six days of creation? I said, I do. She says, do you believe that Jesus' death is sufficient for our salvation? I said, I do. We went through all the doctrines. She says, uh, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and in the speaking of tongues? I said, well, I believe in the Holy Spirit, but I don't believe in the speaking of tongues. She says, then you don't believe the whole Bible. I says, oh, right. I said, do you speak in tongues? She says, I have spoken in tongues many times. I says, then you don't believe the whole Bible because the Bible says women are to keep silence in the churches. Uh, that was the end of the phone call. But anyway, um, you get the point. There's, there's criteria here. And besides this, the Corinthians are told that the tongues, that speaking in tongues is the least of all the gifts. And furthermore, think about it. Did Jesus ever speak in tongues? No, he didn't. Pentecost wasn't about tongues. And Pentecostals are wrong to give that emphasis. Uh, And it's about the judgment of Israel. It's about the birth of the church of Jew and Gentile. There's your leaven mixed in. You see, before this time, the Gentiles were considered filthy, unclean. But now the Lord brings us in. He grafts us in as the church. And we are a wave offering before him. And this is about the gospel and the church's harvesting of the nations. And then you have the sermon of Pentecost. And what a sermon it was. We don't have time to go through it today. But Peter points the scoffing Jews of verse 13 to the, uh, the prophecy of Joel. Claiming it to be a partial fulfillment of the prophet's words. Uh, He then proceeds to preach Christ unto them. And the result of his preaching is the very conviction you would expect when the Holy Spirit takes control of a meeting. 3,000 people are saved in one day. But notice these people were added, and this is the important thing, verse 47, added to the church. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now up to this point, The church is unmentioned in scripture beyond Matthew 16 where the Lord Jesus speaks of it as future tense. Matthew 18 where he talks about dealing with offenses. And then you hear nothing about the church until you get here. And you find the Lord is now adding to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, 
Since Christ referred to the building of the church in a future tense, it's evident that the church had not begun at that time and is not in view in the gospel accounts. Up to this point of Acts chapter 2, and the, the church is a mystery. That is, it's a truth hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. The Old Testament saint wasn't thinking there's a church coming. He was thinking there's a kingdom coming. He wasn't expecting the church to arrive. The church was not on his horizon. And look in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me, notice, the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, notice this, was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto whom? His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles, and here's the leaven being mixed in, should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Verse 9, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things, by Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 32. Paul, uh, likening the, uh, the, the marriage of a man and woman, says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's also evident from the nature and means of formation that the church could not have been formed before Christ was exalted. Look in chapter 1 of Ephesians and verse 19. It says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things. This is at, at and after his ascension, his exaltation. He says, hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So what are we saying? We're saying the church could not have been on earth prior to the exaltation of Christ and that the church was on earth after the day of Pentecost. It's not hard to see what happens between those, those two points. What happens is the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was fully come. And so the, <clears throat> the church had to begin 10 days, and did begin 10 days after Christ's ascension, 50 days after his resurrection. Peter, later on in Scripture, refers to these events as something that happened at the beginning. Look in uh, chapter 11 
of Acts. Chapter 11 of Acts. We're almost done. Acts chapter 11. Here he is explaining to Jewish believers about Gentile conversion, particularly pertaining to Cornelius and his household. And he says something in verses 15 and 16. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. So Peter links the day of Pentecost to the beginning and references it as the beginning with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, whereby believers are immersed into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's exactly what happens. When you and I get saved, we are baptized in the Holy Ghost and we are connected into the events of the day of Pentecost. I like what the Bible commentator and writer Merle Unger wrote in that respect. He said this, Pentecost is as unrepeatable as the creation of the world, as once for all as the incarnation and the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ. This appears from the following simple facts. The Spirit of God could only come, arrive and take up his residence in the church once which he did at Pentecost. The Spirit of God could only be given, received, and deposited in the church once, which occurred at Pentecost. The event occurred at a specific time when the day of Pentecost was fully come, in fulfillment of a specific Old Testament type, the Feast of Weeks, upon a specific few, those who were gathered in the upper room, for a specific purpose for the baptism of the Spirit to introduce a new order. The event did not constitute, and this is the critical thing, the continuing and recurring features of the new order once it was established, or once it was introduced. You see, just as Calvary fulfilled Passover, and unleavened bread was fulfilled in Christ's burial, and first fruits was fulfilled in his resurrection. Pentecost was fulfilled the day the Spirit came, baptized believers into the body of Christ, and the church was born. And the beauty of all of that is we get to be a part of it. That's the beauty of it. This is not something just 2,000 years ago in history that doesn't affect us. No, it still affects us to this day. The leaven of Gentile presence is still added into the plan of God and the church becomes his temple made without hands. The spirit dwells within us and by the spirit we are, as I said, baptized at our conversion into his body and connected forever with the New Testament church both in heaven and earth until Jesus comes. And that, among other things, is one of the reasons why we gather here and why our assembly is so unique, sacred, and special because the Lord dwells in us. Well, we'll leave that there for this evening. Lord willing, we'll come back to Leviticus 23 in a fortnight's time or so, and we'll consider the Feast of Trumpets.